You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. Psalm 3. Don't want to waste any more of our time. Follow along with me. David says this. A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Selah. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. Selah. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Selah. Father, would you uh, come now in a special way and um, speak to us through the preaching of your word? Uh, Well, we trust that when your word goes forward, it goes forward with a purpose and it doesn't return void. So, Lord, we know that and we trust that that's your purpose with your word. But, Father, we ask that you would come and speak to us in a special way. We admit and we confess that we each gather here today um, not like trophies in a room but more like really needy broken people in a hospital so father i pray that you would come and and do work on our hearts through the preaching of your word that you would um that you would strengthen us in our weakness that you would Give us healing where we are sick and diseased. She would call us to repentance where we are walking in rebellion. She would help us to trust in you where we are struggling to believe. Father, I pray that you would come and through the power of your spirit do a miraculous work and that is to remove any hindrances and barriers that would seek to stop us from hearing the life-giving message of the gospel. And I do pray in closing, Father, that you would Guide us through um, this passage and help us to land at the foot of a bloody cross in the doorway of an empty tomb. Pray that in the name of Jesus. And everybody said, Amen. Hey, so the opening line um, of this uh, psalm, of Psalm 3, uh, basically sets the context for everything that David says throughout the entire psalm. Uh, Now, you might uh, be misled into believing that uh, verse 1, the first line, starts off with, Oh Lord, how many are my foes? But I would like to correct that thinking and just help you to notice that the actual first line of the psalm is this. A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. That's actually the first line. In fact, in the Hebrew language, that's actually verse 1. 
Now, the Israelites uh, would have actually sung this psalm in their weekly gatherings. And that would have been the very first line in the song that they would have sang. So if you can imagine it with me, you're standing in a church gathering, and the very first thing that you begin to sing is that line. I'm not going to try to sing it for you because I don't think you want me to do that, nor do I know what the cadence of it would be like or the tone or any of those. But imagine that's the first line of the song that you begin to sing in a worship song or worship setting, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. Kind of puts um, Hillsong and Bethel to shame, doesn't it? Sounds like a really great, light, fluffy way to start off a worship service. Certain this is a, if this line were the first line of a song, this is the song that we would want to choose for our worship gatherings. I'm being sarcastic when I say that I'm certain that all of the popular music artists out there today are just they're searching for this line. This is the missing line and what they've all been searching for, especially that opening line. There's something about that opening line. Doesn't just kind of causes your heart to feel all ooey and gooey and just just enjoy singing that, right? Laying it on as thick as I can because I don't want you to forget this. And when the Israelites would have sung this song, there, there's a background and a context to this line, this first line. It would have conjured up images in their minds as they sang this opening line. It would have reminded the Israelites of the day when all hell broke loose for David. That's what it would have brought up uh, for them. That would have been the imagery in the Israelites' mind. I want you to think about that line. Let me read it again. A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. Let that sink in for a moment. When David's a father... He's running for his life from his son. His son is seeking to murder him. That's the context of this praise song. Sounds like a a great way to open a worship gathering, doesn't it? There is a context to all of this. 2 Samuel 13 through 19, there is a background story um, to this opening line. There's a background story behind the idea that Absalom is trying to murder his dad. David, um, if you don't know, um, he was the king of Israel. The most famous king of Israel uh, in the Old Testament. Jesus, uh, in the New Testament, refers to David as a man after God's own heart. That's That's quite a compliment be paid by Jesus, who is perfect. Referred to David as a man after God's own heart, but here's the thing about David. If you know anything about David, you know that David wasn't a perfect man by any means. In fact, uh, for all of the great stories that we have of David, uh, the reality is that David is guilty of, of horrendous evil. I think we have a tendency to miss that sometimes in the story. Even though David had killed lions and he killed bears, uh, he, he, he killed a, uh, 
a giant with his bare hands, basically. Killed that giant while all the other men um, in the nation hid out in their cowardly corners. <coughs> so while we remember those awesome stories about David, we must also remember that David used his authority as a king for horrendous evil. He used his authority as a king to, to excuse his affair, his sexual affair with his best friend's wife Bathsheba. Uh, many commentators uh, refer to that thing that David did as political rape. It's no different than the stories that we hear today. Famous, powerful, political people even, using their positions of power and authority for personal gain or for sexual favors. Same story. Great King David, man after God's own heart. That's part of his story. While he was a believer, not before he was a believer. While. Not the end of the horror either. That's just one story. David even had his best friend, Bathsheba's husband, that he had the affair with, had him murdered to cover it all up. Now the consequences for David's sin was the death of the son that was born to David and Bathsheba. Um, and sometimes I think that we think that the story ends there, but it doesn't. Uh, there were further lasting consequences. David's family from that point forward was, was marked by chaos and, and rebellion and cowardice and, and even more horrendous evil. Uh, one of David's sons, Amnon, a great name. I'm not sure why you name your kid Amnon. I don't even know how you yell that name down the stairs. Amnon, come here. Amnon, though, um, one of his sons, uh, actually raped his own sister, Tamar. So Amnon's sitting here, and he's looking at his sister, and he goes, wow, she's hot. And then he rapes her. Absalom, their brother, David's other son, sees this happen, steps in. Grabs Tamar, takes him back, takes her back to his home to shield her and help her to heal from this horrific evil that had happened. Is nursing her back to health, basically, in his home, is the way that I see the story happening. Two years. Can't imagine what it would be like for Absalom for two years with his sister Tamar on his shoulder, crying because of what their brother Amnon did to her. And what it would be like to be in Absalom's shoes and feel the hurt and the pain of your sister because of this is what your brother did to her. After um, nursing Tamar back to health for two years, um, Absalom gets very angry. Understandable. Agreed. Hunts his brother Amnon down and has him murdered because he raped his sister. This is David's family. A man after God's own heart. Great shepherd, keen leader of Israel. So this is part of the background behind the opening line of this worship song. This is the imagery that would be brought to mind for the Israelites as they sang this song. It makes me wonder, how is this song supposed to help me worship the Lord? How, how would imagery such as that 
when in a church gathering, how would the imagery of a brother raping his sister help me to worship the Lord? But that's the imagery that, that is evoked in this song. Why would I want to sing a song that has that kind of evil in its backdrop? I want you to consider more of the story with me um, as you ponder and think. After Absalom murders his rapist brother, there appears to be a wedge between David and his son Absalom. If you're just studying this in 2 Samuel, uh, David... David should have been the one to have done something about the rape of his daughter, but he didn't. This leads Absalom to murder his brother instead, right? And and as you're reading the story, it appears that David is actually comforted that uh, Amnon is dead, that Absalom went and took revenge against his brother. And as you're reading it, it seems though that Absalom is super angry, super ticked off at his dad because his dad didn't do what he should have done. Makes sense in my head. So Absalom's anger and bitterness against his father David grows out of control, causes Absalom to then construct this conspiracy to dethrone his father David through murder. Now David... David now is running for his life because his own son wants him dead. So that's the context behind the opening line of this this psalm. The context is all-out war. All hell is breaking loose against the king and he's running for his very life from one of the people that he loves the most. Can you, can you imagine that day? Can, can you put yourself in David's shoes on that day when all hell breaks loose and the, the person or, or, or the people that you have loved the most are now turning against you? That's the day. Think about the day when all hell maybe breaks loose in your life. When your closest friend turns on you. When someone you love betrays you. And when the person that you trusted with your heart turns out to be a liar. When someone that you uh, cared for deeply uh, rejects your counsel and runs towards sin instead of running towards righteousness. Maybe the day when your comfort bubble gets popped by a day or maybe a month of days of horrific evil, difficulty. Maybe the day when the chaos of sin erupts again proves to you one more time that you control absolutely nothing and that comfort in this life is a fleeting dream. Maybe that was the day for you. What was that day? When was the most recent day for you when all hell broke loose? When was the most recent season of days when all hell broke loose in your life? 
When someone's mischaracterized you, when they ridicule you, when they plug their ears and they ignore you, when they talk about you behind your back, when they disrespect you, when they trample on all of the investment that you've made in them, when they abandon you, when they commit unspeakable evil against you. Those are the days when all hell breaks loose, isn't it? Those are the days when you feel the most afraid, isn't it? Aren't those the days when you feel the most alone? Those are the days when rebellion leaves a mushroom cloud in the sky that is too big to see through. Those are the days when it feels like the bodies of those whom you love the most are littering the battlefield of life around you and you you can't get to the edge of the blast radius fast enough to survey or repair the damage. These are days when all hell breaks loose. And I could go on forever and, 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 and put out different kinds of circumstances. What do you do on those days? Where do you turn for help on those days? Where do you find comfort on those days? How do you worship God on those days? If you look back at this worship song again, I want you to notice the movement of David's heartbeat in the midst of all hell breaking loose in his life. Notice the movement of his heart. The first thing that we see is David complains to God. That's refreshing, isn't it? David, David complains to God in verses 1 through 2. I can, just, I can hear the fear in his voice. I can hear the pain in his voice. I can hear the anxiety and the, and the worry in his, in his heart as he says, Oh Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying in my soul, There is no salvation for him in God. Selah. That last word, Selah a word that means to stop and to reflect on this. How about that? It would have been a musical break, an instrumental break. The voices would stop in the song and it would be instruments to allow you the opportunity to reflect on what you just sang. Stop and reflect on this. See, David isn't glossing over. He's not downplaying. He's not ignoring his emotions. I also don't think David is over-exaggerating his predicament, as many of us are prone to do. David's not playing the victim because his sensibilities or his snowflake feelings got hurt. He's, He's bringing his honest complaints before the Lord. Reflect on that. Reflect on what it looks like for you to bring your honest complaint to the Lord. We're much quicker in this day and age to bring our complaints to many other places. We make a phone call, we send a text message, we post another Facebook post. That's how we complain. We slander, we gossip, and we hurt. Reflect on the word many now. This verse, reflect on the word many. David complains that he has many enemies. The sons run around behind his back organizing a posse of supporters to help him overthrow his father. Uh, Later on in verse 6, if you look down there, it appears as though Absalom has thousands upon thousands of people rallied behind him. 
He convinced thousands of people that David was their enemy and that he wasn't fit to lead them anymore. Many people rose up against him. Many people spoke evil of him. They even questioned whether or not he actually belonged to God anymore. A day like that could only be described as a day when all the powers of hell have broken loose. Where do you go for confidence on a day like that? Where do you find your confidence? David found his confidence in the Lord. That's the second thing we see is that David found his confidence in the Lord. Verses 3-4, through right in the midst of David making his complaint. So Lord, I, I can hear, I, I can see, I can read where he finds his confidence to get through a day like this. He says, but you, O oh Lord, you, O oh Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill, Selah. Selah. Reflect on that now. You have your complaints. You have your difficulties. You have your suffering. You've reflected on that. You've brought that to the Lord. I reflect on this. Confidence is in the Lord. What does that mean? Just reflect on where you find your confidence in your days of trouble. When the chaos of sin erupts into a mushroom cloud of toxicity. When you realize that you've done everything that you can possibly do to change the circumstances, but the, the war is still raging on. Where do you find confidence on that day? David finds his confidence in the Lord. Reflect on how significant this is for this guy. Okay? Reflect on how significant it is for David to say that. David was the, the king of a mighty nation. He's a very successful warrior. I already mentioned he'd taken on a lion, he'd taken on a bear, taken on a, a giant, and every other, other man in the nation is, is hiding from. And freaking David, man, he like takes out the giant with a flimsy little shoestring and a stone. Like David's walked through some stuff. Come out the other side still breathing. He even beheaded the giant with his own sword. Like that's a tough dude. A mighty warrior. He's also leader, military general over thousands upon thousands of the nation's fiercest fighting men. <coughs> I'm, I'm honestly, as I read the story I'm back in 2 Samuel, I'm not so certain that Absalom's army would have been any match for David and his 30-some men. It was 300. I probably got the number wrong. All right, go back and check. I'm not so certain that Absalom's army wouldn't have even been a match for David and his, his men. I mean, David had a dude in his crew that was happy to go chase down a lion on a snowy day, jumped into a pit, killed it with his bare hands. That's David and his boys. That's a crew, okay? 
I'm not so certain that Absalom's army was going to be any match for David. David doesn't find confidence in his accomplishments or in his skills, places that we go to to find our confidence. David doesn't go and find confidence in the arms of another lover, which we've seen David do. David doesn't go and find his confidence at the bottom of a bottle. David finds his confidence in the Lord. He rests in the truth that even though there are people who are questioning his salvation, they're, they're, they're rising up to overthrow him, he is secure in God. He trusts that God will not only be a shield to him from the full frontal assault that is coming at him, He's actually trusting that God himself will be a shield all the way around him to the extent that even his blind spots and even his weaknesses that he can't see, that those will be covered by his Savior. Isn't that the kind of trust that we're called to have? It's to trust that God would even protect our blind spots and our weaknesses that we don't even know are there. David found confidence that his enemies would not crush his neck. Something that would have been popular in that culture was when um, warring nations came in and beat a king, they would snap his neck with their foot so that his head would hang so you could prove that you had beaten that king. And David is, is, is saying, I trust that my neck will not be broken. I trust that, that God will lift my head up, that my head will not hang, that God himself will lift my head towards him in confidence. You see, something that you and I have got to know deep down inside is that there's not even enough strength inside of us to lift our head on the days when all hell breaks loose. The only reason that you and I can even lift our head is if our Father gave us the strength to lift it. David knew that if he cried out to the Lord, that the Lord would hear him. On the day when all the fury and all the power of hell broke loose in David's life, David found confidence in God. And I want to ask you a question. What is the natural result of finding your confidence in God? Just think about this for a minute. What is the natural outcome, the result in your life when you Find your confidence in the Lord. Think. The answer from the text is comfort. It's comfort. It's not the momentary comfort that we find in medicating our pain with new relationships or old sinful habits. It's not that kind of momentary comfort. I'm talking about an eternal comfort that is found only in the presence of the living God. finds his comfort in God. Verses 5 through 6, he says this. Listen to what he says and, and sense the comfort. I laid down and slept. Whew. Anybody here like sleep? I laid down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. 
And please hear this. I hear this one thing. I'm a supernatural. It's not natural. Any of this. It, none of this is natural. It's not natural to trusting God. It's not, not natural to find your confidence in Him. It's not natural to find eternal comfort in God. It's, it's supernatural. It's, it's miraculous that you and I, that any of us would ever turn away from our war against our King. <coughs> supernatural that we would ever walk away from that to find confidence and then comfort in God. It's the supernatural result of finding our confidence in the finished work of Christ at the cross is true eternal comfort. It's not the momentary comfort that comes from southern comfort because southern comfort wells, wears off the next day leaves you with a massive headache in the morning. It's the momentary effects of that new relationship that you found That'll leave you empty. It'll leave you lonely. The momentary comfort of, of accomplishing something by overworking yourself is not going to help you sleep any better the next night. Here's what's going to happen. We've all experienced this. We know this. We just wind up living with a fearful expectation, a fearful realization that someday all the things that we put together, this little house of cards that we have put our confidence and our comfort in, it's all going to fall apart. You're not going to make the next deadline. The whiskey and the drugs, the pornography, whatever it is that you or I, we use for momentary comfort, it's not going to outlast our true enemies, our true enemies, Satan, sin, and the grave, seeking our destruction. All the ways that we try to medicate will not last. Even though the first night of David's flight from Absalom, if you go back to 2 Samuel, his first night of flight from his son was sleepless. He was trying to cross a river. At some point, he still found some space for a holy nap. Praise the Lord. One author reminded me that the God who sustains us never <laughs> sleeps. The God who sustains us never sleeps. This is a truth that helps me to sleep at night. You, most of you, if you know me, you know that I struggle with sleep for sure. I typically live on four to five hours of sleep a night. It's ridiculous. I need sleeping pills. I probably need counselors. probably need lots of books and all sorts of things to help me. Sleep is something that's been a struggle for me. At the end of the day, when I sleep the best, I sleep the best when my heart is at rest and the confident comfort that I find in the Lord. See, when, when my complaining is done, when, when, when I find confidence in the Lord and when, when comfort begins to uh, kind of take root in my soul, even, even in the midst of a tough day where all hell is breaking loose, so it's on, it's on those days, at that point where comfort begins to take root, it's at, it's at that point, it's, it's then, it is, it's only then when I've found confidence and when I've found comfort, it's then when I can cry out to the Lord for justice, for salvation, for, for, for blessing. I've learned from David that, that God is faithful 
when we cry out to him in our day of trouble. Anybody here ever experienced that? God being faithful to you. Your day of trouble when all hell breaks loose. And you wonder, where? Where is he now? Verses 7 through 8, David cries out. Cries out. He says, Arise, O Lord, save me. Oh my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek and you break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Silah. Silah. Reflect on this. Reflect on David's crying out to the Lord. You have to get the sense of this cry, okay? You have to get the sense of this cry just right. It's not the emotional weeping of a beaten man. Emotional weeping has its place, as I've experienced it already today, with me. That's not the kind of crying that is happening here in these final verses. It's not the kind of cry that's taking place here. It's not the emotional cry of a beaten man. <clears throat> when, when, when David cries out to God, Arise, O Lord! Save me, O my God! He's echoing a war cry. It's a war cry. It's not the emotional cry of a beaten man. It's a war cry. And it comes out of Numbers chapter 10, verse 35. It's Moses who first uttered this cry. So when David places that in this song, it's a change in the sense of the song. You know that time in the song where the drums start to beat really, really hard, and then the voices lift, and the temple raises? That's what's happening here. It's a war cry. Moses first uttered these exact same words on a day when he led the people of Israel with the Ark of the Covenant going in front of them down from Mount Sinai through enemy territory to the Promised Land. I just hope that you can get that picture. Down Mount Sinai through enemy territory to the Promised Land. That's the cry that's coming from David's mouth in this song. It's a war cry that reminds us that our God goes before us in the battle against the furious powers of hell. See, in, in this war cry, we're reminded that every person who continues in rebellion against the true king and his kingdom, those rebels have a day coming where God is going to strike them on the cheek and he's going to break their teeth. That's a day that we all can take comfort in and simultaneously be fearful of. You take comfort in that because you know on that day, all of God's enemies will be laid to waste. It's a day of justice. Right? At the same time, remember that the mouths that once uttered hatred and slander and laughter at the Lord and His people those mouths are going to be left full of broken teeth. That's a visual that you would sing in worship. 
Yet at the same time, simultaneously, there's a hope in this. There's a hope in what David cries out at the end here. There's a hope for the rebellious. There's an invitation here for the sinful. Every, every one of us in this room is guilty. Guilty of war against our king and his kingdom. But we learn that there is mercy for the wicked. There's hope for the rebellious. We have all acted hatefully towards the Lord. David reminds us in this war cry that God does indeed save his enemies. They become his people and he blesses them. And that's exactly, if you go back to 2 Samuel once again, and you read the story of David at the end of Absalom's rebellion against him. At some point, God takes Absalom out of the picture. And all of the people that were following Absalom and their rebellion and their hatred of King David and the kingdom. (coughs) All of those people that followed Absalom, they come to David and they're begging for mercy. David had the authority to take him out. That's the authority that he had. David completely pardoned every one of them. Can you imagine what that day would be like? To know that you had had done this to your king. That he had every right to take you out because of your rebellion. And that that's what you're facing. And in that moment... He says, I forgive you for no reason. David had no reason to forgive them. Completely forgiven. Restored as citizens of the kingdom that they once were enemies of. And David cries out to God here. He's uttering a war cry of both justice and salvation and blessing through pardon. What a picture of the good news of the gospel, right? On the day when all the furious power of hell breaks loose in our lives, we can complain to God. We can find confidence in God. We can find comfort in God. And we can cry out to God, trusting in the message of the gospel. I want you to think about this final thought. Ultimately, this entire psalm, just a foretaste of what's going to happen at the cross and the empty tomb of Jesus. See, on that day, the day of Jesus' death on a cross... That's the day when all the fury of the power of hell broke loose against the king. They mocked him. They ridiculed him. They questioned if he could even be a godly man. They knew not what was really happening because behind the scenes in the spiritual realm, a cosmic battle is being raged and the forces of hell thought that they had won the war. But Jesus on that day, he trusted his father with his life and with his death. And then on the third day, the stone was rolled away. And he got up out of the grave that he was laid in. And he walked away in complete and final victory over his enemies. And for his enemies. 
on that day, the day that he died, when Jesus cried out, it is finished. On that day, when he rose again, he proved that he is the only savior of wicked men. It's only one place to leave your complaints. only one place to find your confidence. It's only one place to find lasting comfort. It's only one place that gives you true power in your crying. It's only one place to hide on the days when all the fury, all the power of hell breaks loose in your life. That place is a hill called Golgotha. It's a place of the skull. It's a place of death where an instrument of torture became an instrument of pardon. And death in that moment became no more permanent than a short nap. The only hope for rebellious people like you and I is to trust in the very king that we have betrayed. He's faithful to hear. He's faithful to act. He's faithful to save. See, when all the fury of hell breaks loose in your life, you can complain to God, you can find confidence in God, you can find comfort in God, and you can cry out to God from a position of being strengthened by His Spirit. And when you do this, when you cry out to God and you unleash a war cry, you do that from the shadow of an empty tomb underneath a bloody cross. Amen? pray. Father, uh, thank you for your word and thank you for our time together this morning. And I pray, God, that as we close, that you would move our hearts to worship and that you would move our hearts to survey uh, the work that you did at the cross on our behalf. Trust you to do that work. In Jesus' name. Amen. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.